Anti-Asian violence is surging across this country. Deadly shootings in Atlanta. This morning, a man attacked and assaulted a 52-year-old Asian-American woman. New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco have all reported a rise in hate crimes against Asian-Americans. Across the country, over 3,000 reported incidents of hate against the Asian community. Welcome to Many Roads in Conversation, where we look deeply at issues affecting communities within the United States. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. For this inaugural series, we're looking at the roots of anti-Asian violence in America. The series is called I Am an American and has been generously funded by a contribution from Anne Nato Campbell. Joining us today are Dime Lowe Roberts and Patty Duncan, who talk about growing up mixed race in America, as well as the politics, terminology, and gender issues surrounding mixed race families. Dime is a writer, media, and theater artist, and is the executive producer of Media Rights, a nonprofit based in Portland. She identifies as biracial Taiwanese American. Patty is an associate professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies at Oregon State University. She is a mixed race woman of color who identifies as Asian American and Korean American. The two spoke mid pandemic in 2021 via the internet. Well, here we are, Patty Duncan. And Dmay Roberts here in this conversation about mixed race and being in Oregon and what it means to us personally. So we're going to start the conversation, Patty, just talking a little bit about ourselves. And so we've known each other for several years now. Yes. So I'll start off. I'm Dmay Roberts. Actually, you know what? I've changed my name, Patty. I'm oh. Dmay Low Roberts because nice. I've decided to honor my mother's maiden name. Oh. And I've thought about that for years, and maybe that's a good place to start because you and I both have traditionally Anglo names, right? Yes. And so when people meet us, they go, oh, you know, because <laughs> they were not expecting something, you know, like strangers, right? Right. And so I always thought, should I put my mom's name in there, the low? And for years, I thought, well, is that being kind of pretentious or am I... I don't know, am I trying to seem more Asian than I am? You know, all those things that I've I've had to really juggle with and even my name has been such a consideration of of who I am and how, what I want to represent for identity. And so finally I just said I'm going to do it cuz I am Asian, yes. right? I am mixed race Asian. And so all of that, you know, has been a history for me of trying to find acceptance, but also trying to find, you know, my own comfort with identity and my own name for that identity through many, many changes through the decades. So I'm going to start from when I was born in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. I was raised overseas. My dad was in the military and my mom, he met my mom in Taiwan and she's she was Taiwanese. I was born in Taiwan, lived in Japan till I was eight, and then we moved to Reno, Nevada, Boise, Idaho, Eugene, Oregon, finally settling in Junction City, Oregon, where we were the only interracial family in a town of Scandinavians because it was the home of the Scandinavian Festival founded by Scandinavian pioneer descendants, right? (laughs) And so it was a horrible time. And that was actually the first time I realized that we were an interracial family. Actually, the first time was in Eugene, Oregon, when my neighbor friends 
I was trying to catch up to them. We had been playing, you know, for, for a good year and they were with their cousin and the neighbor friend said to lose my brother and me was, <laughs> we were trying to catch up. And he said, get lost or flake off. I remember flake off you Chinese. And I remember that. And it was the first time I, I really thought, oh, we're Chinese and we're different from my white friends here that I've been playing with for a year. And in Japan, I was just an American kid. I wasn't like anything else. You know, we were playing on the military base and there were black American kids. There were white American kids. There were also other mixed race American kids. And we just all played together with the Japanese kids. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first time. And then when we moved to Junction City, I remember our first day of school for my brother and I, uh, we were coming home from the bus and we lived outside of the the town in the country. And my mom came to greet us at the bus stop. And I remember the kids looking at us as we walked down the aisle of the bus saying, they're Chinese. And it was just like this ripple, this chorus of kids saying that. And so that was the first time I encountered that we were somehow different, mm -hmm. you know, and my brother was the brunt of racism from third grade all the way through high school after that, where first, you know, it was because he was the Asian kid and they were beating him up almost every day, every week till he just became this weird kid because he became so inward yeah. and isolated and not wanting to talk to anybody. You know, I'm very scared of people to which to this day he still is. So that was my experience of realizing that we were an interracial family mm -hmm. and that we were different. So I'm just going to leave it there. So what was your childhood like? And what was your first realization of being mixed race? Such a big question. And I feel like your description of growing up and your realization feels so familiar to me and, you know, really resonates with my experience. My mother was in South Korea working at a U.S. military base when my father, a white American, was stationed there. And they met in Seoul and got married, came to the U.S. And I think that you know, I think that it was a really, really difficult experience for my mother to leave her home, leave her country, uh, leave her language and culture behind and experience a form of uh, racism in the U.S. that I think is very distinct and violent. And so growing up in a household with um, my parents, you know, I think that I was always kind of struggling to understand my origin story and how I had come to be. I was born in North Carolina, and my mom came to the U.S. when she was pregnant with me. And we lived in Tehran, actually, for a few years in my early childhood because my father was stationed there. And I don't actually know what that was like for my parents, but I have very beautiful, fond memories of the time living there. And I think it's because we were in this other place. And so it's the memories of coming to the U.S. where I first remember experiencing racism and starting in the public school system. And I think 
I guess one of the memories I really carry with me is being told very early on as a kindergartner and having my mother be told that we, my sister and I should only speak English in the home and that speaking English only would help us to excel academically. And my mother, who had not received a traditional education, you know, she survived a war and grew up in poverty, had, you know, so she came to the U.S. with the equivalent of a sixth grade education. And so for her, it was all about trying to support our education and help us with school and help us excel academically. So hearing that we shouldn't learn or speak Korean at all so that we could do well in school had a huge influence on her. And this was the 1970s. And, you know, she stopped speaking Korean with us. And so I have these early memories of listening to her speak in Korean and understanding it and learning my first words, learning to talk with her. And that I feel like really went away once I started in public school in the U.S., And, you know, there were incidents of kids calling us names and doing the slanty-eyed thing to mock us when we were growing up. But we were living near in military areas, right? So there were always other mixed-race families as well. And so early on, I feel like I, I developed an awareness, not only because of the racism, that I experienced, but also because I met other kids who I identified with. And it was really empowering to find friendships with other kids who had similar backgrounds and experiences and knew what it was like to kind of feel like you're always living between two worlds and never enough of either. And so, you know, I remember being in, I think, sixth, fifth or sixth grade, And a group of friends, girls, we were mostly mixed race and we formed a club around that and actually would have conversations about it and talk about it. And so there was something empowering about it, even while I was also experiencing racism of living in a, a, you know, in Colorado during that time in a state where I think there wasn't a lot of awareness during those years of Asian American experience or of Korean American history. Yeah, I remember my mom packing me these amazing lunches of the food that I loved at home and then getting to school and opening a lunchbox and having other kids make fun of what I was eating or say really out loud that it smelled bad. And for me, it was a source of home. It was comfort. It was culture, my identity, my mother. And you were proud to have that food. Yes, yes. And like Korean food still is my comfort food. Yeah. So thinking back to those lunches, that was really, really important and meaningful to me. That was my culture, my home, my mother. And and food was always a way that she demonstrated love and care for me even in moments where I think she couldn't understand what I would be going through or where we might be having big conflicts later in my life. It was always through food that we could connect and specifically Korean food. 
And so, yeah, I have vivid memories of these lunches that I loved that were also like a source of shame in some contexts, you know, and I, I think that it took me a lot of years to be able to turn that shame into a sense of pride and empowerment, which I feel deeply now when I think about my mother and who I am and who she was. I, I found it ironic after uh, a certain amount of time, I think it was after college, when all of a sudden sushi and ramen <laughs> and kimchi mm-hmm. and, you know, all of that be- and pot stickers and dim sum became like popular exotic foods. And it was stuff that I grew up with. Yes. You know, that I didn't tell my friends about yep. because they thought, it, they thought I would have been weird, right? And that was weird. Mm-hmm. Didn't you also experience like outright hate crime? You know, wasn't there an incident or some incidents with your family? Yeah, yeah. My mother specifically was harassed. And um, there were multiple ways that this happened. And because my father was stationed in Germany for a period of years, during my childhood. And my mom, who had gotten tired of moving around with him as a military wife or a military family, said that she wanted to stay put in Colorado with me and my sister and have some stability. And I think that was really hard on both my mom and my dad, but they agreed that they would do that. And so he was away for a few years. And I believe that he taught her how to drive right before he left. So she was on her own with us and taking us to school and taking us to doctor's appointments. There was a family that lived down the street from us. And I don't really remember much about them, except they had two or three sons. And they were these really blonde white, older boys, older than me and my sister. And I just have a memory of them like walking, walking toward our house frequently and mocking my mom. And so if she was outside watering the garden in the front, they would come and laugh at her and say things to her. And often she couldn't understand. And so she would ask me to come with her or tell her what they were saying. And sometimes they would do or say things to me, but really they targeted her. And so once they put a snake in our mailbox and that terrified her because she was the one checking the mail. And once they burned something in our front yard and, you know, at one point I thought it was meant to look like a cross I'm not really sure what they were doing. I just know that it terrified her that she called the police again and that really nothing was ever done. Yeah. What stands out to me, though, is also a memory where she was being harassed. And it might have been these boys or it might have been some other people who lived in our neighborhood because it wasn't unusual for her to face this kind of harassment, you know, every now and then. And I think she was watering the backyard and they said something really awful. And she turned the hose up full force and sprayed them. (laughs) And I 
loved that response. And I was happy that even though like she couldn't, of course, get any sort of sense of justice or fairness through a system, through a larger system, right? But that that she felt like this was a way that she could kind of talk back to them. Good for her. That's what I say. It just feels like when I hear your story, it, just, it makes me feel so angry. And it makes me remember the times my mom was made fun of. And uh, sometimes she didn't really quite get I mean, or, but I think quite often she did get it, you know, Mm -hmm. and just held it in, right? Yeah. Her bosses at work or any friends that might belittle her. Mm -hmm. I, I just get so angry and that has fueled me. I'm angry about my brother, you know, because of the, the, the bullying that he had experienced, but I'm also angry about the racism she had to deal with. And, and just, I sometimes wonder witnessing it just makes you yes just i don't know just want to like strike out and so for me it has fueled my work you know and the bulk of my work has been anti-racism because i just don't know what else to do with that that rage inside me yes yeah i totally hear that and i identify with that and i appreciate the work you do so much i'd love your work because it is powerful. And I think it comes from a really personal place of knowing and living that experience. And, you know, I feel like I've had a similar response in some ways where I, I'm constantly working through these larger questions about structural forms of oppression. And for me, I think also because I saw the forms of oppression my mom experienced I think about the specifically, you know, gendered kinds of racism that she experienced, which is not to say that an Asian immigrant man or person of any gender wouldn't have also faced violence and hardship, but that it's like my mom was constantly treated in ways that were also very much about her identity as a an Asian immigrant woman and a Korean American woman. And those shaped my life, you know, witnessing it, experiencing it, but also being mixed race and being Asian American myself, you know, and I know you know this and you experience this too. It's like all of the ways that I think growing up being treated like I was exotic or other or different or somehow not belonging. And I would face this a lot from white people and white communities, but also I think there's a there were pieces of discrimination and exclusion that within my family that I experienced and that my mother experienced from other Asian folks too. And for her, it was the stigma associated with marrying a white US soldier and being looked down on often by other Korean people because of that at that time. And for me, I think it was being and is being mixed race, you know, and struggling sometimes with feeling like I'm in this in-between space where it's like you're never, you're never Asian enough or you're never like fully, I'm never fully Korean or, you know, I'm not fluent in the language or there are certain pieces of the culture that Sometimes I don't know if that is 
being Korean or if that is specific to my mom or <laughs> specific to the way I was brought up. And so like all of these questions that I think have fueled my desire to make change also, but perhaps a little bit differently. Well, I think you bring up a lot of issues that involved exclusion and also just the way military brides have been treated historically in this country. Let's first start talking about what it means as far as exclusion and and mixed race. You know, I'm just going to go through the names. You know, identity has always been fluid and it still is. I used to call myself half something, right? Half Taiwanese or half Chinese or half Asian. And and then it progressed, you know, when we got into more hyphens to Asian hyphen American but then it became like biracial or multiracial. And then through the years, that changed to mixed race. And it took me a long time to embrace that name because of the prior societal norms about pure blood, Mm -hmm. because monoracial people may not have to deal with that as much because you're not a mixture or a hybrid. And so I always thought the term mixed was actually negative. Mm-hmm. And so when this name mixed race came, it took me a long time to sort of get over that negativity about that name. So once I embraced that, I still called myself biracial. I still called myself multiracial. And I think it's okay to have all of these names for your identity and that there's not one, you know, one size fits all when it comes to that. Now, I was surprised to learn in looking into Oregon's history, the term mixed race was actually around. You know, there's this uh, wonderful detailed chart that has all of Oregon's exclusion laws from 1844 through 1959. Now, the term mixed race was used starting in 1848 up until 1951. And there was laws that were banning mixed race people from having land, from everything, voting from, you know, having special taxes on them. And then also laws banning interracial marriage until 1951 in Oregon. And so looking at this, you have to feel somehow that you are trying to be made less than because of your mixtures of race and your race period. And I just, you know, I think that that is so different from the immigrant experience of, say, the Irish coming to this country, or the Greeks or the Italians. It is just such a different experience to have these specific laws that every state has, including the national laws of the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act and all the rest of them. And it's just something that really shapes you when you learn about this. When I gave you that chart, what was your response to that? Oh, Uh, Yeah, I appreciated seeing it. And I was, you know, I feel like I've learned a lot of the history of, you know, exclusionary laws and racist laws in the US, but it was really striking to see them specific to Oregon and to think about how some of this legislation is very recent. The 1951 repealing the law prohibiting interracial marriages. That's not that long ago, really, you know, and thinking about the ways that early on, looking at that chart, Dime, I was thinking about how 
the laws seem to really be targeting Black and Indigenous communities, right? That they were really specifically anti-Black and anti-Indigenous. And as time progressed and probably there became more of a presence of Asian immigrants, it seemed that they began to include a targeting of Asians. And so just kind of tracing that history feels, yeah, just really intense. I mean, all of that, all of these exclusion laws for every single race and mixtures of race is just one big message. We don't want you here. I mean, that's the message. Or we want you here as labor, as temporary labor, uh, as long as you don't, you know, establish families and communities here. Or we want your service for for free or for cheap, you know. <laughs> and so it's like it's it's a constant um, feeling of yes, you don't belong, you're not welcome, except on these terms. And, and it it really is surprising that it took till 1951 for Oregon to ban, you know, ban the ban on interracial marriage. That wasn't that long ago in history. Mm-hmm. And I think it's harder for younger generations to realize that, that, you know, that we used to be illegal, right? We used to be illegal to even have our parents marry each other. And, and that's, that's kind of shocking now, but we kind of grew up under that I don't know, that kind of stigma Yeah, that somehow we didn't talk about that. Because I remember even in school, oh, I remember, oh, yes, this is coming to me now. I think it was like social studies class. And my, I, I think my teacher was really racist. It was like eighth grade. And he said something about how most mixed race or most interracial marriages or I don't know why we were studying this. I guess it was d- demographics that most interracial marriages were from were forced marriages because the the woman got pregnant. And he said that in class, right? That somehow anybody who marries a non-white person in the military is marrying because he he got somebody pregnant essentially, not because he loved them. There couldn't ever be any love. And I remember that you know, for a long time when I would tell people about my my parents and the one thing that they would say is like, oh, your mom was so lucky your dad married her as if, you know, because she must have gotten pregnant or something because he had to marry her. And and that assumption just cheapens that their whole relationship. And I think military wives have always had that, Asian military wives especially, have always had that that stigma, that stereotype, you know, it goes all the way back to seeing that movie Sayonara where, you know, they had to kill themselves because the military wouldn't let them get married and he, you know, bring her over because it wasn't part of that War Brides Act. Uh, yes, I I totally know what you mean. I feel like that that sentiment that, you know, no one would willingly <laughs> married or loved that that that's somehow not possible i heard that sentiment as well dime that my mom was lucky oh she was so lucky that not only lucky that my father married her but lucky that she got to come to the us to live as though living in korea would have somehow been horrible right or i think it translates to this idea that I'm lucky, right? That I'm lucky that he married my mom and I got to live here and grow up. I heard that a lot growing up. 
when people would see my parents or hear my story. And it always sort of came in like a, a cluster of questions. You know, the what are you question, of course, that I know you have heard a lot, but I always, also always heard, how did your parents meet? What are you? How did your parents meet? This deep curiosity, wanting to know the backstory. There must be some dramatic backstory. There must be something that will give us a clue as to how your mother ended up here. And I think a lot of times those questions are not neutral or innocent. They come with a lot of assumptions about Asian American or Asian immigrant women and people and communities. And they come with a lot of assumptions about us as mixed race people. I, I call those questions interrogations because that's what it turns into. Yes. Because as soon as you say, well, I'm Asian and my dad was white, you know, my mom is Asian. All of a sudden there's this torrent of questions Starting with what you said, what are you? How did they mean? It's like they want every single detail and that you are a clue. They need a clue to, and you're a puzzle, right? That needs to be figured out. Yes. Because these pieces do not fit together. Right. 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 Exactly. And, you know, along with that, I don't know if you experienced this, but I would have people guess my racial identity. Um, and this started in my childhood, but I think it was probably most aggressive in my late teens and through my 20s and 30s, where people would try to guess, you know, and sometimes the, the guesses would be done in this kind of flirtatious, almost sexualized way. Sometimes people would try to speak to me in certain languages and see if I'd respond. And often it would be, oh, you must be this, or I know you're this. And it has felt sometimes violent, you know? Well, no, I've had people get angry at me when I often have had to reveal my identity and then, you know, they realize usually it's after I hear some anti-Asian joke or some some racist joke or comment. And I they thought that I might be something, but they thought it was probably more white than anything else. And then when I say, oh, what you just said was completely racist, there was like this look of somehow that I have been a spy upon their culture and I, you know, <laughs> and there's like outright anger that I would even bring this up. Mm-hmm. And I, I have dealt with that a lot. And I totally understand what you mean about, you know, this guessing game. And then there's the, once you reveal your identity, there's also this denying mm-hmm. response like, oh no, you can't possibly. I even remember somebody said, you can't be because you're too big. Wow. You know, you can't be Asian. You know, you're, you're just too big. I thought you'd be smaller, like people that I'd met on the phone or something. Right. And I was like, okay, yeah. All right. And it's like, I almost had to carry a picture of my mom because if you see my mom, we have the exact same shape of face, exact same, very square jaw. And why should you have to prove your identity to some stranger? What hurts even more is actually when friends do this too. I don't know if you've had this experience, but yeah, I've had friends say to me, oh, you should meet this other mixed race person because she's like you. You can't tell. 
Mm-hmm. And that that hurt me to the core, somebody that I thought was my friend. Yeah, that's painful. It is. <sighs> so I know that we've been getting really personal. I just mentioned that friends who sort of deny me my identity. And I think that's what exclusion is, right? Just denying your right to be who you are and to have the same rights that everybody else has in your community, in your state, in your country. And I think about Loving versus Virginia, and a lot of people are still shocked that the law in Virginia against interracial marriage was in existence until 1967, which again, isn't that long ago. So Loving versus Virginia, the case was about a black and white couple who were married in Washington, D.C., where it was legal, and they lived there for like five years. And then they came back to their home in Virginia, where their families lived, and they were put in jail almost immediately for a year. There was a law called the Racial Integrity Act. And they were sentenced to a year in prison, and they fought the law all the way to the Supreme Court. And there was this wonderful movie, if anybody has a chance to see it, it was called Loving, actually. And they did a really good job. It was almost a documentary feel to it, but it was about this couple and their fight to the Supreme Court. Now, when I first learned that interracial marriage was illegal, it really was a shocker to me hearing this history. Because what you're hearing is something, again, denying your rights, denying your identity. When you first heard about bans on interracial marriage, what was your reaction to it? I think it was hard not to have a very personal reaction to it and to think about, you know, my own parents, my own family and the people I I know or knew at the time. And in some ways, it's like it helped to explain the kinds of stigma and discrimination that I had experienced and witnessed with my family. But also, I think learning about it and trying to understand some of those histories, when I first learned about it, I think it it was shocking. You know, I think similar to you, it was very upsetting. (sighs) Well, I think the importance too, I mean, here, here we go. It, it's, it's in legislation, right? It was in legislation until 1967 in this country. It was the last ban. And it reminds me of how quickly things can change, you know, when it comes to exclusion laws, particularly, because in some ways we're still dealing with certain kinds of exclusions regarding immigration you know, Asians weren't allowed into this country for a very long time to to come here legally until 1965 to be able to have people who are already here reunite with their families to bring them to this country. But I think that's, again, something else that separates us from European immigrants, especially, because Asians... Africans, you know, Latin Americans were not allowed the same rights and privileges that European immigrants were allowed. Yes. Where it was, oh, come on, you know, give me your tired, your poor, just come on over. But everyone else has had to fight their way, and some have had to fight their way out of slavery, you know, again, the harshest form of exclusion. Mm-hmm. And it just is a constant reminder in this country that you are somehow less than white Americans. And that's what these exclusion laws tell me. Yes, I would agree with all of that, Dime. And I think that there's also always this pressure to assimilate 
And for those of us who are mixed race, sometimes it becomes a pressure to assimilate into whiteness as as if that were possible, right? But there's an idea that, and a pressure to disavow. For me, my identity is Asian, is mixed race, is Korean American. And so in many ways, I think these these laws historically were really structured around keeping certain groups out, keeping racialized communities from access to land and homeownership and building communities and permanence. And of course, you know, it's so tangled, right? The histories in many ways are really interwoven, but it's like at the same time that there might be this pressure to keep one racialized community out, there was an invitation to another to come and work on the railroads or to work in this program. Or to be farm workers, you know? And yeah, we want you as long as you go back home, right? Right, right. And often it feels like that has been used to divide and conquer and to try to keep communities of color from coming together and building movements for solidarity. And so, you know, part of where my interest lies is in trying to understand the ways that we can build these movements, right? And come together and try to like look at all of those places and moments where we've been pushed apart. And for Asians and Asian Americans, sometimes that's been through the myth of the model minority and the idea that like Asians and Asian immigrants and Asian Americans can somehow assimilate or live up to these standards through racist framework and a racist framing. And so, you know, I'm just kind of thinking about where our conversation started today, like how in these moments of turmoil that we're living in right now, you know, how we begin to kind of think about the larger pictures and to connect anti-Asian violence, for example, to the forms of violence targeting multiple other communities. And we've been talking about our mothers too. And I think about the recent upswing of anti-Asian hate crimes Yeah, of our elder women being punched, being thrown to the ground, being assaulted. Elder women on the street, you know, there've been elder men as well, but it seems like the most vulnerable have been the elder women. And I think what if that had been my mom, you know, or your mom? Yeah. And and just that devastating feeling that no matter what you do, no matter how hard you work in this country, somebody could come in your elder years and just punch you in the face because they want to blame you for this pandemic or they are just angry and you are the target. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, all those incidents have been so traumatic and so painful and devastating. And I think especially when, you know, within so many of our Asian American communities, it's like the elders are deeply respected and beloved, right? And so to imagine, you know, someone like one of our mothers being assaulted in such a way is painful, you know, and, and knowing that like, that's more common than we're seeing in the media, and that it's happening more frequently than we know. Yeah, I think about all the times it has happened and not been reported, because that's the other aspect of being 
Asian is quite often you don't want to call the law. You don't want, you know, because it's a source of shame if something bad happens to you. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to bring that, you know, you don't want anybody to know, just like my mom and probably your mom too, didn't want anybody to know that they actually were experiencing this racism. Mm -hmm. So getting back to our moms, you know, the War Brides Act, because we're both from military families, Again, it's not a huge shocker, but the War Brides Act of 1945 only applied to European women, and there was a special addendum for Chinese women because China was an ally during World War II. And then Filipina and Indian women were allowed to come as war brides or military brides in 1946. And then 1947, they actually removed the term, if admissible, which was a big exclusion to Korean and Japanese brides to, to immigrate here. You know, it's, it's another example of somehow putting this caste system, you know, of each Asian ethnicity. And it also is that is a way for even within Asian communities to be at odds with each other of this hierarchy of East Asian versus South Asian versus Southeast Asian. There's this hierarchy that's built in these laws. Yeah. And I think that also shapes us because also you and I are also half white. So that places us in a different place than say somebody who is half black and half Asian. Yes. And, it, and there's this term colorism. And so we have to be aware of that too. But there's all these ways to divide us. Yes. And so it makes it really hard sometimes to then come together, even though we have these shared experiences and try to understand collectively what our experiences have been. Yeah, I felt that I felt this growing up because, you know, knowing that like as I was building community, for example, as a, ch a child, often with other mixed race kids near a military base, certain kids were definitely discriminated against more within the schools. And I would say the black mixed race Asian kids were definitely stigmatized more and dealt with a, a specifically anti-Black, anti-Asian racism that was incredibly painful and deeply entrenched. Whereas for me, for example, with more light skin privilege, sometimes there would be more pressure to try to fit in or assimilate into the mainstream. And while I recognize that as a form of privilege, I think it was also hard because as a child, for example, it came with a pressure to deny my mom and where I came from and, you know, who I am, my identity, my, my history. And so it, in some ways, you know, would lead to more confusion and more feeling embattled. I relate to that denial too. I felt that a lot in high school because I didn't want to go through what my brother went through. So I was undercover, I, you know, secret Asian woman for a while. But it wasn't until college that I was able to actually meet other people and that, you know, there was more diversity for sure, but not, not where I was growing up. Yeah. So I, I wonder too about younger generations and what they're going through, because I, I really find that there is an affinity between mixed race people, you know. We do have things in common about what you alluded to before about between different cultures, between different races, and that in-between spot 
of embracing both parts or many parts. Some people have three or four parts to themselves and embracing that and saying that that makes, makes you, you. I've been actually very proud of younger generations of mixed race Americans because I don't think they're going to take the kind of stuff that we took. I don't think they're going to, you know, they're going to be more vocal and they're going to call it out. You know, you work with young people. So what's been your experience with younger generations of mixed race? Um, My experience with some of the younger generations of mixed race people, including some of my students, for example, has been amazing and inspiring. They have a language for it. They can articulate some of their experiences and feelings in ways that I feel it took me so long to be able to do. There's a sense of pride and a kind of a fierce determination to hold on to all of themselves that again, like took me a long time to claim. And so it's wonderful. It's inspiring, you know, and I'm not saying that's across the board, but these are some of the folks that I've had the honor to get to know and work with, you know, and I think about it in terms of my own child who is 11 and mixed race and how important it is to me to constantly be telling him about his history, his identity, his family, and to instill a sense of pride and knowledge in him. And he is so proud to be mixed race. He claims his Koreanness. He claims all of it. I mean, he's only 11, so I don't know how, how that'll be. But, but right now, it feels like there's not that sense of deep confusion that I felt at that age. It's more of, yeah, this is all of me. And I claim it all, and I'm proud. I don't know. That makes me, that makes me hopeful. That makes me hopeful too. I, like you, took a long time to embrace my identity and I still work at not feeling less than because I'm not monoracial, you know, to be in an Asian American group and, and still feeling like I don't quite belong there, you know, that I'm not quite enough Asian. And that sometimes upsets me, but I think that younger generations won't have that. And I, I am so hopeful because of that. I really hope that that there is acceptance yeah. just because. So so in closing, how do you identify? What have you what have you, you know, after all of these years when somebody says, you know, what's your identity? What do you say? Oh, such a good question. Dime, I feel like I am similar to you and I loved what you said earlier about how, you know, you've gone through multiple terms and now you sort of own it all. Um, I feel that way too. I feel like I have moved through a lot of different words to try to describe myself. And I've come to a place where I'm comfortable claiming all of it. So I will say I'm mixed race. I will say I'm multiracial. Sometimes I say I'm a woman of color. I'm Asian American. I'm Korean or Korean American. I think all of it describes me. And I'm coming to a place where it's like, yes, I will take all of it and try to claim it in a way that that feels hopeful and optimistic for the future and also like builds bridges so that I'm able to kind of work with multiple other communities and be a part of multiple communities, I guess, in different ways. I'm exactly like that. It also, I find that it depends on 
what situation I'm in and what I feel like during that day. But I think that we should call this conversation all of the above. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's all of the above when it comes to mixed race, right? It's all of it, you know, everything that is within you. That, yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's who we are. Yeah, yeah. And we get to be all of it. Many Roads to Here is a production of The Immigrant Story. Many thanks to Dime Lo Roberts and Patty Duncan for their time and their willingness to share their stories and lives. This episode is a part of the I Am an American series, generously funded by Ann Nato Campbell. For more episodes in the series, please visit our website. This episode was produced by Dime Lo Roberts. Greg Palmer assisted with audio editing, and music was composed by Corey Larkin. Our executive producer is Loquacious Sankaraman. For more stories, visit theimmigrantstory.org backslash many roads. Listen live at prp.fm or stream us wherever you get your podcasts.